Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 122. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast. Before we start with the interview, I want to remind you on January 18th and 19th, I'm starting a new eight-week mastermind course focusing on John Maxwell's book, Sometimes You Win, Sometimes You Learn. Next it'll be eight weeks. Uh, it's uh, two sessions on Saturday mornings and one on Sunday evenings on January 19th, and it'll go till March 15th or March 16th, depending if you're in the Saturday or Sunday class. Uh, I look for about 10 per class, and so you can find out more information. I did a webinar the other day uh, that kind of talks about some of the material that we'll be covering in this mastermind class. You can find out more information. You can go to my website, doseofleadership.com, and click on Mastermind Info up in the upper hand um, uh, menu column. Where you can get more information. So again, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for all your support. I love the feedback I'm getting from you. And um, if you have the time, take the time you're finding value in this show. Please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review of this show or Stitcher. It helps so much for my visibility. Again, thanks for being a fan of the show. And here's the interview. All right. Well, what a thrill it is for me today to have Allison Levine. Uh, she's a history-making adventurer who has climbed the highest peak on each continent, served as a Team captain of the first American Women's Everest Expedition and skied to both the North and South Pole. She currently serves as an adjunct instructor at the United States Military Academy at West Point in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership and is the author of a brand new book that's coming out called On the Edge, The Art of High Impact Leadership, coming out next week, January 7th. Having spent prolonged periods of time in some of the world's most dangerous and inhospitable places, she addresses the topics of creating cohesive teams, taking responsible risks, and developing no-nonsense leaders that can succeed in times of uncertainty. Allison, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of the podcast. Well, I'm excited too. You know, our good friend Sean Acor sent me an email a couple of days ago and said, oh, you've got to have Allison on your show. And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. And I went to your website and said, oh, this sounds extremely awesome. And I was so thrilled that you decided to do this so early. Unfortunately, I haven't read your book, but that's okay. I'm excited. You know, just in the pre-interview, I'm just pumped up, already enthused, energetic after listening to your enthusiasm. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, how it got all started for you. Well, first of all, as far as how I got started in mountaineering and polar exploration, from the time I was really young, I was very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. And I would read these books and I would watch documentary films. And when I, I actually had my second heart surgery when I turned 30. So I was born with a hole in my heart that got larger as I got older. And I had my first surgery at 17, which was not very successful. But my second surgery at age 30 was successful and I was essentially cured and had no more cardiac issues and had pretty much a clean bill of health. I mean, some other health challenges definitely, but as far as my cardiac problems went, those were all cured. So the light bulb kind of went on in my head and I thought, all right, if I want to know what it's like to be Sir Edmund Hillary and climb Mount Everest, or if I want to know what it's like to be legendary explorer, 
Reinhold Messner and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should get out there and do it instead of just reading about it or wow. watching films about it. And so I figured, gosh, there's nothing really holding me back at this point. Why not do those things? And obviously, I didn't start off by you know, climbing Mount Everest. I started off on much smaller, less challenged mountains and worked my way up over the years, improved my skills, learned as much as I could from better, stronger climbers and got to the point where I was ready to take on larger, more challenging peaks like those in the Himalayas. And in 2002, I was actually asked to serve as the team captain for the first American women's Everest expedition. So that was a huge honor for me. We were sponsored by Ford and took the first team of American women to Everest. So that's really how I got started. Everest was my first Himalayan peak. We got to it in 200 feet of the summit, and we had to turn back in bad oh, weather. Man. And it was a great learning experience for me, even though it was hugely disappointing to not make it to the top, especially because it was a fairly high-profile expedition. 450 media outlets followed our trip, and then you miss it by what's essentially a stone's throw on, on oh, Mount Everest, you know, just a, several hundred feet. So. Uh, it was, you know, learning experience didn't dampen my enthusiasm for climbing, but that was really the trip for me where I started to really think about leadership and how to be a better leader and what can I do differently and what can I learn from other people. And that's really where I became interested in the art and science of leadership. When was this in your period of life? How old were you? When, when did this all start? So I actually didn't start climbing until I was 32 years old. Wow. So it started a bit later in life for me, and it's a great reminder that you're never too old to reinvent yourself or to take up new hobbies and try new things. I mean, 32 certainly isn't old, but as far as starting out in the mountaineering industry, it's pretty old. I mean, people are starting in their late teens and early 20s, and so... While it was sort of late in life to be starting a sport like that, I still, I mean, I loved it. I was so passionate about it, and I just felt like I needed to make up for lost time. So I went to as many mountains as I could and worked on my skills as much as I could. And now I'm 47, and I keep thinking, if there's something else I want to learn in this lifetime, oh, I, you know, I can still do it. I love that. I love the idea about the intentionality of taking action and doing something. That's kind of been my... Especially as I've done this podcast and run leadership masterminds, is is leadership is so much about intentionality. We so many of us go on autopilot. It seems like you know, and you, here you said at thirty two, gosh, it seems like people go on autopilot when they get out of college or even if you know out of high school, and they just kind of stay in autopilot until the day they check out. But uh, I love that right. intentionality. What were you always into, like high adventure and and other types of extreme sports prior to that, or? Well, no, not really, because uh, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, so we don't have a lot of big mountains right. there. It's obviously not cold there, so it's not really where I got a taste of adventure for the North or South Pole or anything like that. It really just came from reading and from watching films. And I, you know, my family, my dad was a pretty good athlete. He was a baseball player in college, and he always hiked and liked to be outdoors, but we never really did anything adventurous as a family, I would say, other than, you know, family dinners were pretty adventurous just because there was a lot of arguing at the table, but <laughs> right. other than that, I mean, I didn't really get it from my family, I just got it from 
reading and observing other people. And I mean, I don't know. There was just something in me that drew me to the mountains. And that voice just got louder and louder until I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I thought, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is where I'm supposed to be. Oh, it's so, it gives me goosebumps. I love hearing it. I love hearing about when an individual listens to their passions, listens to their heart, and takes that risk and takes that leap of faith into, into trying yeah. something different. Especially when it's something uncomfortable. Right. Because for me, my first time going to the mountains was uncomfortable. I was cold. I was nervous. I was scared. I was thinking, wait, I have to put everything I need in a backpack? You know, I'm going to be out in the middle of nowhere with just the things I can carry with me? What if I need something I don't have? And it, you know, when you go to the mountains and realize that everything you need, you can carry on your back. You just, I mean, re- when, once you realize that everything you need, you can carry with you, it's a pretty empowering place to be because right. you realize I can make do with very little. I don't need a lot to survive. I just have to be creative. I just have to learn to improvise. And once you get that stuff down, it, it's really quite a self-confidence builder. Yeah, I love that. I love the the idea too that um well I can imagine that that you know, I've talked about leadership and flying airplanes and the corollaries. That's that's kind of where I come from. I can imagine uh doing what you did. There's got to be so many corollaries between, you know, extreme mountaineering and being in those type of survival situations and everyday leadership. Um I love how you talk about leadership as everyone's responsibility. Um it's not solely the responsibility of you know, the man or woman at the top or the C-level executives, it's it, leadership is for everyone. That's something I talk about here a lot on Dose of Leadership. Tell me about that and how that relates to your experiences in, in mountaineering. I love that question, first of all, because it speaks a lot to how I've evolved as a mountaineer. And when I look at myself now at 47 versus how I was as a mountaineer in my 30s, I'm a much, much better climber now, not because I'm physically stronger or because my skills are so much better because I probably was physically stronger in my 30s than I am in my late 40s. Mm. But what what makes a difference for me now and why I think I'm better is because uh, I'm so conscious about leadership. Whereas when I first started climbing, I thought, okay, the way I can impress people is by being strong and fast. If I can be the out front, if I can be the fastest person, if I can be the first person to the summit, if I can be the person to keep going when everybody quits, that's what's going to impress people. Mm. And that is completely wrong. Yeah. I think, and what I learned through studying leadership was I learned about the kind of climber that I really want wanted to be. And I didn't want to be the person who was on top first or who was the fastest. I wanted to be the person who everyone wanted on their team. And, and the person that everyone wants on the team is necessarily the fastest or the strongest. It's the person who's going to look out for everybody else. And now I'm not concerned with being in front, being the fastest or getting to the top. I'm concerned with being the person that's going to help out the people around me. And I see someone struggling instead of looking back on them. Oh, wow. I'm so far ahead of that person. That person's really slow. I know I need to be right next to that person, helping them every step of the way. And I need to be the person 
you know, that isn't on the top looking down at people going, oh, poor you, you don't think, you know, you're not going to make it. Look how strong I am. I made it. I needed to see the person standing next to the person who's doubting themselves saying, you know what? You can do this. I know you can do this. And if we lock arms, we can do this together because I'm not going up this mountain unless you're next to me. That's the kind of climber I want to be now. That's what I strive to be now. It, who cares about who's the strongest or the fastest or who has the most summits or who's on top first that day? It's really about who's the most helpful and who can pull a team together and who can get the person who's doubting themselves to continue walking uphill. And that's really what I focus on now. I don't care about being the fastest or the strongest. I do care about... At the end of the trip, I do care about people saying, wow, I'm really glad I was on that trip with Allison. So that's my goal is to be that person and to learn how to be that leader. And like you said, it's not leadership isn't about being the designated team captain or the designated leader or having a certain title or something like that. It's just about realizing that you do have a responsibility to be looking out for the people around you. So because of that, everybody's in a leadership position and everybody should be thinking that way, not just on a mountain, not just on a South Pole expedition, but everywhere, on every playing field, in every office, in every community, in every home, in every family. That's how we should all be thinking about leadership. Yeah, I love that. Everybody has a leadership obligation, whether you know it or not, or whether you like it or not. And and it's so funny how when we're younger, we think leadership is like you said, is like, well, I got to be, I got to show everybody I'm smarter, faster. Uh, I, I deserve to be in this position. And, and and we lose that sight. It's it's funny because that analogy that you gave happens to so many people that I've talked to on the show. It's happened to me. And as you get older, and you do realize that we all. It doesn't matter about your position or your title, that we all have an obligation within the organization to lead, and you're absolutely right. Some of the most, I think, challenging and most rewarding leadership positions is when you're right there in the middle, um, not taking credit for yourself or not being the person out in front per se. So, uh, oh, I love right. that. I love that analogy. Well, and I'll tell you another, another experience that I wrote about in the book that really changed my leadership perspective was a lesson I learned from a polar explorer named Eric Phillips, who's from Australia. And it was really my first extended polar expedition. So we were out on the ice for six and a half weeks, dragging these 160-pound sleds across 600 miles of Antarctic ice. Right on our way, we, we started skiing from the edge of the Antarctic ice shelf, from the edge of western Antarctica. We were going to the South Pole. And I hadn't done a lot of polar expeditions. I had done tons of mountaineering expeditions. I was used to high altitude. I was used to being out in the cold. I was used to pushing myself. I didn't mind a suffer fast. I could do it, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going on this polar expedition, and I thought, I, I'm, used to, I'm strong on these trips. I'm used to being out front. I'm used to being one of the stronger, faster people. Well, I get to this polar expedition, and what I didn't realize is that dragging a 150-pound sled across the ice is actually very, very different from carrying a backpack up a mountain. Mm. And what I found was that no matter how, you know, and I trained, I trained really hard for this expedition, and I thought, no one is going to show up and be more prepared than Allison Levine because I'm a good teammate. Part of that, showing up, being prepared. So that's me, right? Right. Well, what I found was that no matter how I trained, no matter how prepared I was, 
the, the laws of physics basically dictate that someone who is six foot four and 230 pounds is going to be able to ski and pull a 150 pound sled a lot more quickly and more efficiently than someone who's my size. I'm about five, four, 108 pounds. So what I found was that I couldn't keep up with my teammates. Right. And for the first time, I was the slowest, mm-hmm. weakest person on the team. And I could not keep up with everyone. You might think, oh, well, it's okay to be a little bit slower. Well, in certain environments it is, but it's not in an Antarctic environment because when people have to stand around and wait for you for a few minutes, they're going to freeze. They're going to become hypothermic. They're going to get frostbite. You can't stand around and wait for people. And I was basically putting the team at risk because I couldn't keep up with them. And, of course, that absolutely gutted me, the fact that I was now the slowest, weakest link on this team. About four or five days into the trip, I overheard Eric talking to his tentmate, George, and he was saying, I really feel bad for Allison. You know, she's struggling so hard. She's trying so hard to pull her weight, and she can't keep up because she's so much smaller. And George said, I know. She's really trying hard. I feel bad for her as well. And Eric said, you know what? Let's help her out. I mean, there's got to be a way to help her out. Maybe we should take some weight out of her sled. And the next day, I loved the way that Eric handled this because they got out of the tent, and Eric said to George, hey, buddy, do me a favor. I want to weigh everybody's sleds. I want to make sure they're all about the same weight, make sure we're all carrying about the same amount of gear with us. So they each picked up an end of Eric's sled, and they picked up, and they said, all right, this sled feels good. George, grab the end of your sled. They each picked up the you know, the end of George's. They picked it up. This one feels good. All right, grab the, you know, grab an end of Bernice's sled. Let's weigh Bernice's sled. They picked up Bernice's sled. This one feels good. They dropped it on the ground. Hey, grab the end of Allison's sled. Let's weigh Allison's sled. They both pick up my sled. They pick it up about six inches off the ground. They drop it at the same time. They start clutching their backs, <laughs> screaming in pain. Oh, my gosh. What is in this sled? This is crazy. You have the heaviest sled of anyone on this team. Allison, why are you carrying so much weight? This is insane. We've got to make this more even. George, grab her food bag out of there. I'm going to take some fuel canisters out of her sled. We've got to lighten this load a little bit so it's not so heavy. And they took weight out of my sled, even though I knew it didn't weigh any more than anyone else's sled. They offloaded the weight. They made my sled lighter, which meant I could move faster. And now they've made their own sleds heavier, meaning they are going to be carrying heavier, you know, heavier sleds and be taking on more burden than they should have to. But they did it on my behalf. And I thought the way Eric handled it was so brilliant because he let me keep my pride intact. He could have gotten out of his tent and said, listen, you're slow. You're slowing us down. We're getting tired waiting for you. We're going to take some weight out of your sled. We're going to carry more so you can lighten your load. That's not the way he handled it. He sent me a very strong message telling me that he wanted me to succeed. Yeah. He wanted me to be part of the team. And he wanted us to get to the South Pole together. And that, to me, was a turning point in my my leadership thinking. And it, it taught me the importance of how you handle a weak person on your team. Because we all have them, right? We all right. have someone on our team, whether it's at work, in sports, whatever, 
that cannot perform at the same level. And I used to always just wish those people would go away. <laughs> if that person wasn't on my team, my team would be so much better. We would be so much faster. We'd be so much stronger. Oh, my gosh, I hope that person quits. I hope that person gets transferred to another department. I hope that person takes up a different career. Anything, if we could just get rid of them. And the way Eric handled things really changed the way that I looked at weak members. The other thing it did is it immediately made me start thinking about how am I going to repay this guy? Hmm. So, sorry, I got to take a sip of water here. Hang on. Oh. <clears throat> sorry, I'm just kind of fighting a little bit of the flu. Yeah, that's right. But here's here's where this story's going. Is the reason this story was so important to me is immediately I started thinking, what am I going to do to repay these guys? for what they've just done for me. And what, at the end of the day, when you're on a polar expedition, you ski for 12 or 15 hours a day, you're exhausted, but at the end of the day, you've got to set up camp. So you pitch a tent, and then after you pitch a tent, you've got to spend 30 to 45 minutes building a snow barricade around your tent to protect it from the elements. And the way you build that snow barricade is you've got this snow shovel that you use to shovel snow around your tent, build these snow bricks, and the shovel itself is pretty short because when you're on an expedition like this, you want to save weight. You can't take a big, huge, heavy shovel. You've got a short, little, light shovel. But what I noticed were these tall guys wrenching their backs, bending over, trying to use this short snow shovel. Well, of course, I'm shorter to the ground. I'm 5'4". I can use a short shovel without screwing my back. So that next night, after Eric and George took the weight out of my sled, I said to them, hey, you guys, can I can I shovel the snow around your tent and build your tent barricade? And they said, wait, you want to shovel the snow around our tent? And I said, yes, I do. I, I want to shovel the snow. And they said, and why do you want to do that? And I said, well, because I love to shovel snow. <laughs> and they said, you, you love to shovel snow. And I said, yes, I grew up in Phoenix, and we never got to shovel snow, so shoveling snow is a big treat for me, and I, I just, I love to do it. They said, all right, and they handed me the snow shovel, so at night, as often as I could, I shoveled the snow barricade around the tent, so at the end of the trip, you know, for me, it was a way I could contribute, you know, with my size, I found a way that I could add value, even though I was shorter and smaller, and the end of the trip, Eric, you know, we made it to the South Pole after six and a half weeks. We're all exhausted, but we were celebrating our victory. And Eric said, oh, you know, I'd love to hear about what everybody will remember most about this trip. So everybody was talking about what they were going to remember. And I said to Eric, well, what are you going to remember most? And he said, I think I'm going to remember how much crazy Allison likes to shovel snow. Hmm. And I said, are you kidding me? I hate to shovel snow. <laughs> The only reason I shovel snow is because I overheard you talking about taking the weight out of my sled. And he said, oh, you, you knew about that? And I said, yes. First of all, I overheard the entire conversation. Second of all, you guys are horrible actors, <laughs> you know, pretending my sled was so heavy. And, you know, we, we just had a good laugh about it. But it's interesting. It was, it, you know, because Eric was willing to sacrifice for me, that immediate, immediately built trust and loyalty. 
right. between us. And it, it made me think, what am I going to do to repay this guy? And if you can find a way to be creative and help the weaker person on your team be a contributor, you will often get more value out of that person than you would have had they been able to contribute at the level that everybody else was contributing to begin with. And as a leader, we have to, you know, we can't hammer people to overcome weaknesses because oftentimes people will not overcome a weakness. They won't be able to. But as leaders, we need to be creative and help people find a way to compensate for their weakness. Not overcome it, but compensate for it. Oh, there's so, that story is just fabulous. There's so many lessons to be learned. And But to your last point there, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think too often we try to fix weaknesses. And I what I always tell people you need to do is, you, need to, you know, stop trying to fix your weaknesses per se, but focus on your strengths. And if you focus, right. if, if you if you operate within your strengths, whatever they may be, and you operate outside your comfort zone, man, you're unstoppable. Or at least you're at least you're you're taking it to a level that you you've never um, you know, it definitely gets you out to out of, out of the mediocre range anyway, and gets you into that. Absolutely. Time, so, and it made me. I mean, I thought about all those times where I was on a mountain and there was someone slow, and I was thinking, "Oh, please quit, please quit." I mm. hope that person drops out of the expedition because we'll be the rest of us will be so much better off if we could just get rid of that one person. And now I look back and think, "Wow, had I been a better leader, and had I..." been creative and thought about how I was going to help that person succeed rather than hoping I could cut them loose. You know, our team would have been so much better off. So that experience with Eric really changed the way that I look at, at leadership because sometimes you're in a position where you can't get rid of someone. Right. And, and you're, and you don't get to choose your team. That's right. And you have people that are, uh, you know, assigned to you, to your group, you know, that report to you, or, you know, there's, you're, you're not always going to be able to pick your team, right? So you're going to have people that don't perform the way you want them to perform. Instead of hammering them, realize that as a leader, it's your job to help them find their sweet spot. Yes. Oh, very nice. Good stuff. You know, one thing I was... Uh, I was thinking back when when I really started getting turned on to leadership. I just I just thought about this as you were talking. Is that I remember seeing years ago, and I read the book too about uh, Ernest Ernest Shackleton and his expedition. Yes, and that yes. to me is such an excellent event. Uh, what a great leader, right? It's a, it's a phenomenal story anyway. I mean, it just it, it it's almost like a Hollywood movie. You know, you can't can't make this stuff up. But uh, what a great example of leadership and. It, has Shackleton played a big part in your life? Yeah, I. so first of all, I love the story of Ernest Shackleton. I write about him a little bit in my book as well. And he was considered, you know, although he didn't achieve his goal of being right. the first, meeting the first party to cross Antarctica on foot because their ship got stuck in pack ice and eventually the ice crushed the ship and they survived you know, for months and months on these, I suppose they were presumed dead, yet he got every member of his expedition home alive, right? And that's always the number one goal, come back alive, right? Right. So he did that. But what I thought was so interesting about Shackleton's story, too, is when he set off in the wooden, you know, in the rowboat, in the James yes. chair, you know, finally at the end when he was going to go go for help, 
and he had to choose people to get in that rowboat with him and row across the frozen seawater, he didn't just choose the strongest rowers. He also had to think about who is going to cause problems if left behind. Yeah. And he took, you know, he thought about who do I need to take with me to make sure they don't cause trouble if I leave them behind. And I thought that was a really, I mean, quite a brilliant thing to think about at the time because if it were me, I would probably be thinking, who's the strongest rowers? Who's going to get the, the highest chance of getting to where we need to go and surviving? But he thought he was thinking about not just he had to take with him for success, but he was thinking about the team members he was leaving behind and what he had to do to keep them out of harm's way. And I thought that was really quite an amazing example of leadership. Yeah, it's such an amazing story overall. I just I remember seeing that years ago, right when I was right before I was getting ready to go in the Marine Corps, and I read that I saw that documentary and I read that book, and I was like, what an just crazy example. There's so many examples of leadership and, and things to learn from that as well. You know, the other thing I was what struck me too about your leadership style that I absolutely love, and I would imagine it has to be the same in the Marine Corps. You know, we're we're taught to push the leadership responsibility down the absolute lowest level to train everybody to think and act like a leader. And the reason why the Marine Corps does that is because it's they, they kind of operate on the one bullet away theory. And, and that goes simply, you know, hey, what does it take for this person to take my job? Well, it's not necessarily, you know, education or experience. It's one bullet. And because the war doesn't stop or the battle doesn't stop when the lieutenant's taken out the platoon sergeant or somebody's right. going to take over and go on and we'll worry about the bodies later. I would imagine being up in those extreme environments, especially when you're climbing Everest or something. Like that, I mean, the reality is if somebody goes down, uh, you can't stop. Right. Right. I mean, right. So, so talk and to me. it's interesting because if you read uh, John Krakauer's book, Into the Air, right about the 1996 climbing season on Everest. So the spring of 1996 was the deadliest season in the history of Everest expeditions. And two of the world's best, most experienced high altitude guides died on Mount Everest, Scott Fisher and Rob Hall. And, you know, I, first of all, it's hard to speculate on exactly what went wrong because everybody's got a different version. And unless you were there, you don't know exactly what went down. Right. But, it does seem like no one knew what to do when those leaders didn't come back, right? When, when your guy says, hey, wait here until I come back, and then the guy doesn't come back, then you're screwed if no one knows what to do. And that's what happened was nobody knew what to do when the guides weren't there. And, you know, more than a dozen lives were lost on the mountain that season. And... If people had known what to do, you know, you got to think if the leader's not there, what will happen? And that's why it's so important for everybody to think and act like a leader. And so going to Eric Phillips again on this Antarctic expedition, God forbid if something had happened to Eric, I know our team would have been okay because every single day somebody else took leadership responsibilities. And again, thanks to Eric. Every day he had somebody else out in front in charge of route finding, figuring out, you know, how many miles do we need to go today? 
what route do we need to take? You know, somebody had, we you know, was navigating by GPS, by their shadow, by compass, by, we used all three of those navigation techniques. Somebody had to decide, you know, how many hours we were going to ski, when we were going to stop for meals, where we were going to pitch our tent, you know, what the meals were going to be, what the, what the plan was going to be for the next day. Everybody took those responsibilities. So if something had happened to Eric, we would have been okay. And when you're in, in when you're in an environment like Antarctica, it could be days, weeks, or even longer before any type of rescue can be orchestrated because the weather is so harsh. You know, the weather has to be just right. The winds have to be just right in order for planes to be able to land in Antarctica. So it's not like if somebody gets really hurt, you can, you know, have a rescue plane in there in a day or so. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah. It'd be weeks or longer. So you've got to be very self-sufficient, and you've got to be able to carry on if something should happen to the designated leader. And because of the way Eric led our team, we we were all ready to step up if we had to. Hmm. A couple questions as we wrap up here. I think if you had to tell, you know, there's so many people out there. I hear from so many um, middle managers or people kind of stuck in the middle like we were talking about before where they're responsible for kind of leading or managing up you know kind of communicating up they got to manage down for the people in the team but the biggest challenge too they got to you know lead and manage across with their peers you know that whole kind of 360 degree leader concept what advice would you right. give for somebody that's kind of in that position and they're maybe they're frustrated um, they don't feel like they're making an impact. Um, they don't feel like they're being listened to, but at the same time, they got to be positive. It's a very challenging position. What advice would you give to somebody in that role? So I think one thing you can do to sort of help build bonds between team members, whether they're people that are at a level below you or above you, and I think one of the best things to do is when you create sort of, and I don't want to, you know, the, the word mentor is so overused. Right. So that's not necessarily the right word, but if you can create relationships and bonds with people, I think just saying to someone, and this is what I would do, is if I felt like I was having trouble with somebody that was a level or two above me, that they weren't listening to me, that I had these great ideas and they, I wasn't being taken seriously or I just was, you know, wasn't given, didn't really feel like I had a chance to voice my opinions or share my ideas or wasn't being respected the way I wanted to be respected, I would ask that person out for coffee, and I would never approach someone and say, hi, will you be my mentor? Because uh-huh. I just think that's dorky and corny, and it, people roll their eyes and think they're just, you know. <laughs> I, I think the best thing to do is just to approach someone and say, hey, first of all, find something you liked that they did. Hey, I read this article. I read this memo. I liked this. Or I heard what you said in that meeting. Can I grab a cup of coffee with you? And sometimes if you can get that person one-on-one and they realize that what they have to say is important to you, then that will be reciprocated and will be, and what you have to say will be important to them. Mm, I love that. And sometimes we also, the, you know, the days get so chaotic and we also tend to maybe assume we're not important or assume we're not being respected when it's really that someone's just busy. You know, and we have one data point and we tend to think, you know, often think the worst. So this person said this to me in a meeting. It means they don't respect me or they didn't like my idea. They're not going to listen to me. And sometimes we read too much into things. And I think if you can get people one-on-one 
and dig down a little deeper and get to know them a little bit, that is what really starts to breed that trust and loyalty. If people think you care about them, they will care about you. And it, it's hard often to do that during meetings or in a cube or in a normal work environment. But if you get somebody outside of that and grab coffee or lunch or dinner, I always go for coffee because I think people are so busy and, you know, they want to go home after work, so I don't have Hey, dinner, you know, that's kind of a larger commitment of yes. time. Yeah, you're right. But can you grab coffee? And I find if you spend the time to get to know someone on a personal level, not just on a work level, tell, you know, hey, what's going on? You know, ask about their family, ask about their kids, find out what's important to them outside of work. And that starts to establish a personal relationship. And it, when you ask people those questions about them, about their life outside of work, then they think, oh, this person is interested in learning more about me. This person cares. This, you know, when, when you think someone's interested in you personally as a human being, not just as a point of production in the office, that is what, what helps build that trust and loyalty. So it's digging down deeper and not looking at people as team, but looking at people as individuals and showing that you care about them as individuals. And I think that goes a long way in building trust and loyalty between people. Oh, I love that answer. Great advice. And, and it's so true. I mean, if you can just take that intentionality and do something a little different, you're right, because the perceptions that what, how you're perceiving it may be completely wrong. And if you get to know that individual, oh, that's, that's great advice. Yeah. I mean, it's because when I've been on mountaineering expeditions and people will say, oh, how many mountains have you climbed? And when did you do this? And how far did you get on this? And how high did you get on this? And how fast did you do this? It's different than when I'm with someone and we're hiking along. Hey, so do you have brothers and sisters? Right. Where are you from? Or, you know, all of a sudden I think, oh, this person isn't just interested in how I can help them on a mountain. This person's interested in me. Right. And that is a whole different thing. And, I mean, it it builds a different type of trust and loyalty than if people think you only care about them as far as, you know, what they can produce for you to help you in your role. They want to know you care about them as a person. And that's completely different. And I do. I think that is what leaders need to do to build trust and loyalty. Oh, I love it. Great answer. Last question, and this is for my VIP listeners. I um, I always ask the same question, and I'm, it has to do with self-image and confidence. And it, it, one thing that's always surprised me, it's, it's been, on one hand, it's refreshing. On one hand, it's a little, um, it's sad that we do this. and we, we, we are our own worst enemy. The self-talk that we tell ourselves is can always be so so negative. And I, one of my interviews I did with uh, Fawn Germer, and she told me she interviewed a lot of um high-profile people in her book. It was 300 women she interviewed. You know, every powerful, famous woman you can think of she interviewed for the book. And she said what surprised her was that of all those 300, all of them except five, and she thought three of them were lying to her when they the the, the five, that they all still, even though they're successful now, have problems with self-confidence and self-image problems. How Talk to me about that, about confidence, self-image, how we can overcome that, how we can stop, you know, kind of the negative... Um, self-talk, if you will? Wow, that's a great question. And it's interesting because what you just described about Fawn and her book, it doesn't 
it doesn't surprise me hearing that only because I think women do in general have this I you know I forget what they call it exactly because there's a word for it where you feel like you're it's imposter you feel like you're some kind of imposter or something like someone's gonna find out that I mm. should be here and I had that same you know even when I got into business school at Duke oh my gosh didn't realize that this I was an admissions mistake and even the whole first week of business school I thought someone's gonna come into this classroom and read my name and say Allison Levine you're out you know you're you're not supposed to be here sorry we made a mistake same thing when I got my job at Goldman Sachs, right out of business school, I thought, okay, they're going to realize that I was mm-hmm. a hiring mistake <laughs> and that they shouldn't be here. And it's funny. I mean, I do still feel like that with every interview I do. And someone says, oh, we want to do an interview or a podcast. I keep thinking, are you sure you want to do this <laughs> with me? Um, but then I think about how much I learned from just a random person on an airplane or you know, sitting at an airport gate. And I think we all have so much to learn from the people around us. And so I think, first of all, one thing that can help the uh, self-confidence and the self-doubt is we need to stop being so damn mean on social media. (laughs) I mean, that I can't believe how mean people are on social media. And if there's, if it's not something you say to the person's face, then you shouldn't tweet it or you shouldn't, Put it on Facebook or whatever. I think that social media, I mean, I know people love it and it's changed the world and all that, but it also, there are a lot of negative effects from social media. And I think that people need to be a little more conscious of that. And if, I mean, when I look at some of the tweets that are out there, I oh man, how can people be so mean? I mean, that's not what people need to boost their self-confidence. But I think in another sense, social media can be good because it does help people feel like they're not alone and feel like they have a voice to express themselves and to, you know, feel some sense of belonging with other people. So I think in a sense that's good, but I I don't think you'll ever get rid of people's feelings of insecurity and I mean, it's just, I don't know. I just think it's, part of human nature in a sense that when we achieve something we think oh well maybe I didn't deserve that or maybe I'm not as people have the impression that I am I don't know I mean no I know exactly what you're saying I, I, mean, I mean that's the thing I think I think you know we we, we tend to uh, we tend to you know some of the things that we say to ourselves we would never say to anybody else and then but to your point if a lot of times when people are lashing out or or being bullying or whatever it's 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 comes from a deeper insecurity but um right well, right but i think we all i do hear what you're saying and i know people do have that sense of insecurity or i it's imposter syndrome or something. i think that's what they call it i don't i feel like i don't belong here um and part of it you know part of it is i think just taking a step back and saying Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you do belong here. You do belong wherever you are. And we just have to, I think, take a deep breath, look around, and say, as long as I am leaving this world in better condition than it was when I got here, then I deserve a pat on the back. Yeah. You know, I'm doing what I'm, what I'm doing what I should be doing here. Yeah. And whether it's 
you know, you're in, in a job where you're, you can harness your creative abilities and you're, or you're inventing something or you're just, I mean, the most important job in the world is being a great parent, right? And raising happy, responsible children who will contribute to their communities. I mean, if that's what you're doing, I mean, you're doing it right. Right. You know, and you deserve a pat on the back. And you don't have to be making a gazillion dollars or hold 15 patents or, you know, be the next Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. you got to raise happy, responsible children who will contribute to their community. And if you're doing that, then you're doing the right thing. And so I think, you know, we got to cut ourselves slack sometimes and realize that we all play an important role in this life, in what we do every day, and, you know, your name doesn't have to be on the, your name and photo don't have to be on the cover of Time Magazine yeah. in order to realize that you're doing that. To make it significant or meaningful, you're absolutely right. Well, guys, yeah. this has been so much fun. I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. Unfortunately, I don't have all the hours, and, I'm, and I appreciate you taking the time. The book is On the Edge, The Art of High-Impact Leadership. It's coming out January 7th. Um, I'm so excited to read this book. I think this is going to be a go-to for me time and time again because I love the metaphors. I love the stories. I love the analogies. Um, I'm looking forward to it coming out. How can people reach out to you? How can people find you and connect with you? Oh, my gosh. So first of all, I'm on Twitter, and it's Levine underscore Allison is my Twitter handle, and also through my website. The website's allisonlevine.com. There's a contact button there. If you Email me to my website. All those emails come directly to me, and I will answer every single one of them. Awesome. I will have links to this on the post. I, I can't tell you how f much fun this has been for me. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really I'm so honored to be a part of your podcast, so thank you. Well, the honor's mine, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. i got to have you back uh, you know, some other time, a lot of a lot of guests. I know Sean's going to come back, too. I'd like to have you back when we talk. Maybe I'll have some specific topics to talk about. Maybe we can have like a themed podcast or something if you're willing to come back yeah. sometime. Yeah. All right, Allison, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.